every playwright breathes a certain way. Every playwright has ideas and has a way that they want to present themselves or concerns that they have. I love working on Shakespeare because Shakespeare has such a big breath. He breathes so that the mountains shake. You know, his people are powerful, powerful people. And when they look at you, they look at you with thunder and lightning coming out of them. There's no pussyfooting around with those people. Mm-hmm. You know, they are a thousand percent present. This is Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hello and welcome to episode five of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within. So part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because I have a lot of fascinating people in my life and I wanted to share them. This guest is very special to me. His name is Lester Malesia. He is a director that I have worked with a number of times in the theater, and we've developed such a deep friendship to the point where I consider him family. He's worked in New York, he's toured all over the world. He was the artistic director of Seaside Music Theater for almost 25 years. He was one of the producers for a Million Dollar Quartet. And he's one of the most resilient people that I know. He's had a number of health scares, and he's currently in a rehabilitation center recovering from some complications. So please forgive any medical device sounds in the background. You probably won't even notice because he's so compelling and interesting to listen to. But uh, he's been on his deathbed a number of times, even coming back from a coma. So he's definitely meant to be here right now for a reason. And he has so much wisdom and knowledge to share with the world. He's beloved by every actor and crew member he's ever worked with. And I am so excited to share him with you. Here is Lester Malesia. The screaming lady has uh, begun. Okay. (laughs) The screaming lady. Is she in, like, down the hall? Yeah. She screams for a while and she makes (laughs) weird duck noises. (laughs) That might might add a little flavor to this whole thing. That's sort of what she does. Okay, just you and I hanging out talking. Yeah, that's all it is. We don't do that enough. Uh, Oh, lady. I want to start at the beginning of Lester. At the very beginning when you were growing up in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. In your very Italian family. And when you were a child and you realized that you had an individual voice of your own, that you had your own unique thoughts without the influence of others. Can you remember the first time that you discovered that? Okay. When I was a little guy, we, uh, I was always been sort of sick. Um, when I was born, they gave me not a lot of chance to live. And that kind of keeps coming back the rest of my life. I don't know why, but that's mm-hmm. what happened. But when I was a little guy, we lived on top of the restaurant that we owned which was uh, the Villanova Inn on Washington Street, Newcastle. I remember my mother telling me, we had a party line at that time. Do you know what a party line is? I believe so. It's like you you share your telephone line with with another person. So you both Mm -hmm. use the same line. Mm -hmm. And my mother said, 
that her water broke and the other woman was on the other line and she kept talking and she kept talking. <laughs> and my mother said to her, can you please get off the phone? My water broke. And she said, well, honey, just get something to sop it up, thinking she meant just she broke a vase that had water in it. Said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm pregnant and my water broke downstairs. And the entire populace, the bar and the restaurant came running upstairs to get her to bring her to the hospital. So I was born with a lot of people around me. So it takes a village. So I guess I've always been okay with crowds around. Um, but I remember when I was a little guy, I used to, uh, we were, we had one of the only colored televisions in the neighborhood mm -hmm. and the NBC Peacock used to come on at the beginning of the programs and it would turn into color. And that's how you knew that the program was going to be in color because not all were. And uh, I would scream for mom to come and turn the color on. But I used to, uh, take all of my comic books and everything. And I made a, a stage and I would direct all of my comic book characters to tell their stories. <laughs> and I found uh, anything that dealt with um, theatricalized things at the time, television had a lot more of that going on in the early days of television. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more dramatized programs. It wasn't quite so much situation comedies. Mm -hmm. A lot of really wonderful writers. Kayevsky, I think, wrote for them. And, uh, of course, Rod Serling, his Twilight Zone. And uh, a lot of people, they even did some D.H. Lawrence plays, I think. Wow. And I always found it fascinating that you could become another person and tell their story. Mm -hmm. That was, I love telling stories and the idea of being able to become other people to tell stories was fascinating to me. And in school, I always liked telling stories and stuff like that. Of course, I was the uh, really weird one when I, so when I was a little guy, they used to make me come out when there was a party, recite the Raven, which I could do by memory. And I kept thinking later on, I thought, those people must have thought that is the strangest little kid. <laughs> I would just stand in a corner, close the raven, nevermore. You know, it was, it <laughs> How was old bad. were you at that time? Probably seven or eight, I would think, you know. But it always, there was always something in me that needed to tell stories, that needed to step up. I remember, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, one of the big acting teachers, Stella Adler, that's who it was, okay. criticizing him. And he finally said to her, oh, you want it bigger than life? She stopped dead and pulled back and said, darling, there is nothing bigger than life. And I thought, that's true. There really is nothing bigger than life. Whatever you have, however your life is, you let it grow to that size. And then when you put it on stage, it has to take the stage. It has to demand the audience's attention. You have to be alive to every moment of it. And I think in the acting, from that, you know, two and a half, three hours that you were on stage, you absolutely lived at the top of your life, at the top of your game, you know. 
everything is brighter. Everything was more intense. Mm -hmm. There was no just passing by when you're on stage. You have to be at your A game and you have to be totally convinced of yourself up there with your colleagues. And I love that. I love the idea that for the time you were on stage, you were as alive as you'll have ever been that entire day. Mm -hmm. We had a friend, uh, his name was John Egan, big old Irish guy, he used to try to tell me the difference between lace curtain Irish and something like that. And uh, he would take me to see plays and he took me to my first audition, which of course I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> I just where, kind of fumbled yeah. up there. Um, what point were you still in Newcastle at this point or where were you? I was still in Newcastle and Dave Matthews was the director at the time. And he was this very big elaborate guy. And, and he cast me in the Wizard of Oz um, as like chorus and whatever. And I remember we had to wear these little green. This was, of course, in the 60s. So the costuming, <laughs> I looked like a, <laughs> I had this short little green skirt or like, I don't know what you would call it, a one-piece moo-moo type thing that came <laughs> above my knees and plastic boots on. I thought we should all be like go-go dancers in the disco of Oz, you know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I got through that, and then it was that was pretty cool. And then I think the next, he called me to do the next play, so I was hit the roof. And I just started working with them. And I think I was there as often as I could be. I think the next thing I did for them was uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And then I would, I remember I never wanted to go home. Mm. Even when like I was done with rehearsal. Yeah. I just would find a little place to sit and watch everybody. I wanted to see everybody rehearse. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see how people rehearsed. I wanted to see how people learned how to dance and how the choreographer went about choreographing things and how the director, who was David, talked to his set designers and his lighting designers and how that all worked. What was the, all the inner workings of all of that? And at that point, I think in the back of my mind, I always wanted to be a director, but I Put that back because I was what 17 or something like that mm -hmm. and um, that was I didn't see that as a possibility for myself and um, <clears throat> I took every drama class I could when I was in high school I did every play that I could when I was in high school there was a guy named Mark Klinger mm -hmm. who taught the drama classes and directed the plays. And then in my junior year, they brought in this guy called Joe Scarvell, who was a really big presence. And, you know, he's still around directing over at the Youngstown Playhouse. And I think he's in his 80s now. Wow. And he had one glass eye. And at the time, he smoked a cigar. And I remember the first thing he cast me in what we were doing Finian's Rainbow and he cast me as Finian and I kept thinking I don't think I look very Irish but you know it was <laughs> high school so what are you going to do <clears throat> so 
if he liked what you were doing, he'd run up on stage and hug you. And the one eye would just kind of like stare you in the face <laughs> while the other eye kind of bounced all over the place. And then he would just hug you. And if he didn't like what you were doing, he'd throw a lighted cigar at you. I managed to escape without any cigar burns. So I figured I was doing okay. So we had a big success with that. The next year they decided to do Bye Bye Birdie, not among my favorite musicals, mm -hmm. but I played uh, Mr. McAvee, you know, Paul Lynn's role. Yeah. And uh, I had the worst time learning that Ed Sullivan song. When there was a little boy who played my boy and the music director kept saying, well, he learns it, why can't you? And then, <laughs> I don't think that poor little boy knew how close he came to being murdered. But, uh, there were, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's about Elvis. Right. All that. Well, he cast a black kid as Elvis. Wow. And this was in 1969. We mm -hmm. got picketed. We got picketed. At the, at the high school for having a black kid having to kiss a white girl in the show. Wow. So I thought only Joe Scarvell could possibly have made Bye Bye Birdie a controversial <laughs> statement. But people went wild about it. They just went wild. Mm. And then we had a teacher's strike at the end of that year. And I was on my way to Europe, which was like my, my uh, graduation present. They sent me over to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to go on time. So we were working to get all that. And then we had, a, they used to have a thing called class day where you do this kind of like weird show for everybody. And uh, it was kind of like a cross between Saturday Night Live and uh, Laugh-In. Like a sketch comedy kind of thing. Yeah. And they, uh, everybody's like, Lester, you have to direct this. You're the only one who knows how to do it. So that was actually my first directing job. Um, <laughs> he, uh, and it was rude as all get out. We just had the best time. And then I think we went to Kennywood Park and I eventually did make it to Europe. But that was my first taste of really being, of really directing people. And I remember we had the best time. We just had the best time. Little did I know that as you get older and you enter the profession mm -hmm. and more money is riding on it, it's not always as much fun, you know. Yeah. I love doing it. I love directing. But when there's tons of money on it, people get a little more antsy. But at any rate, uh, we did that. Then I went off to Europe, which was eye-opening for me. Because when I went to Europe, I traveled all around in a Volkswagen camper with my cousins. <laughs> and a lot of times we would just camp out. Sometimes we stayed in hotels. But I was not what you would really call an outdoorsy kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So they had to show me how to use like the air mattress and <laughs> how do you... <laughs> One of the things I remember is Europeans have the weirdest toilet paper on the face of the planet. <laughs> it's the worst. But uh, we spent... I spent a lot of time in Paris. Mm -hmm. And I, I went over to see the Paris Opera House. And uh, we spent time in Amsterdam, and we spent time in London, 
and Rome. I loved Rome. Mm-hmm. I, I it it's so weird, but it's like most cities like that. When you get into the middle of it, there are parts of it that are just like garbagey. Right. But then out of that garbagey parts comes these magnificent edifices, like the Colosseum and all that. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, several years ago now, but they were working on refurbishing the Colosseum and they did a production of Oedipus Rex in there. Wow. I thought, oh my God, I would have loved <laughs> to have been there to have seen that, you know. Yeah. How did uh, how did going to Europe change you as a <clears throat> an, an individual from Newcastle, Pennsylvania? Completely. It changed me completely. That's where I found my voice and where I found my independence. Mm-hmm. Because along with losing my virginity, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, I met all of these people who were, and you know, this was still when the Vietnam thing was hanging over all of our heads, and were very passionate about everything, passionate about philosophy, mm-hmm. and passionate about um, theater and all of that. And then I stayed over there for a while. I was supposed to come back, but I auditioned for hair and got cast in hair in Amsterdam. Wow. And we lived in tents. So I stayed over for a couple more months and did hair in Amsterdam and uh, met people from different parts of Europe that were doing theater all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I came, when I came back, all I wanted to do was go back to Europe because I felt much more at home in Europe than I ever felt Yeah. in the United States. I did not feel at home here as much as I felt, I don't know, I just felt I had a connection to the history mm-hmm. and the philosophy and the uh, argument of Europe, I think, yeah. is the best way to put it. I can relate to that. I felt the same way when I was there. Of course you did. Yeah. Of course you did. Anybody who's worth knowing feels that way as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Yeah. So uh, I did go back. I went back. Oh, I know what happened. I went to Westminster, which was, uh, you know, Westminster was very good to me. They hired me to teach out there and all this stuff. But as a student, it was very bad for me because it was, at the time, it was a very conservative school. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, I wanted everything at that point. You know, I wanted to know everything. And they didn't want to teach me anything. And, you know, I think if you don't try everything, you don't get anything. So it stopped me, and I was not planning on being stopped. And you asked when I found my voice. Yeah. And it was Europe, of course, that led me to my voice. And there was a teacher out there at the time who was, I don't know, and he's gone now, so I can never ask him, <clears throat> excuse me. But he, there was something between the two of us that was just not settled at all. And uh, I think he was determined, you know, some te- there are some arts teachers, not only theater, but I think all arts, who have this weird philosophy 
that in order to make you an artist, to teach you how to be an artist, they first have to break you down completely yeah. and take away everything about uh-huh. you to then rebuild you as an artist. I don't yeah. believe that. Like a military style. Exactly. Yeah. And he was that. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't bear it. And finally, I went into his office one day, and I actually ended up standing up on his desk, stamping my feet on his desk and screaming, I'm paying you for an education, and you are not educating me, and this is ridiculous. So uh, that about ended my uh, career at uh, Westminster. Uh, The guy who was the head of the department came to see my parents and really wanted me to stay at Westminster. And I remember this guy telling, well, you know, you should be, maybe you should be in a conservatory. I said, well, maybe I should be, but I'm not in a conservatory right now. I'm here Mm -hmm. and I would like to contribute here, but you're not letting me. And I, that is making me crazy. Anyway, I went to New York. Uh, I eventually went back to London. I studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. I, got to be with Peter Brook uh, in his workshops. He was just at that time had, was kind of coming to the end of uh, his theater for cruelty, theater cruelty Mm -hmm. workshop uh, where he took the teachings of Antonin Artaud with some Grotowski put in there and took us through those kinds of exercises. And I felt like I had been reborn as an artist. I felt like after that, I could do anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that. I came back to New York. I finished my work in New York at the American Academy. And then I met there a man called Max Fisher. Mm-hmm. So I would say Peter Brook, Max Fisher, Joe Carvel, Mark Klinger, those were the men in my life who most shaped me. Mm-hmm. Um, Max was a major actor in the Weimar Republic in Germany. And he was an actor as the Nazis were taking over. Wow. And he was about to play Hamlet in a production that was going on in Berlin. And the Nazis came in and forbid the production from going on because obviously it didn't sit well with the Nazi philosophy. But anyway, uh, he wouldn't work with them. They put him in a concentration camp. It was not like a, um, like a Jewish concentration camp. It was for their more political prisoners, Mm. but still horrible. Yeah. And uh, the first day I was in his class, he went around to the class And he went to each person and said, why are you in here? What are you doing in here? And, you know, this one kid stood up and said, because I want to be rich and make a lot of money. (laughs) Max said, get out of here. (laughs) Max's entire thing was that as artists, we are the mouthpiece of our generation. Mm -hmm. We owe it to our generation to speak out. And I remember I was uh, working on Richard III, and uh, 
he <laughs> I did the opening, you know, now it's the winner of our discontented day. <laughs> and he said to me, You would make a wonderful Richard the <laughs> second. <laughs> oh, oh, that's really bad. <laughs> he said, it is bad. <laughs> I said, okay, let's go back to work. So he started taking us back to Nazi Germany. And he was saying, you know, all of these people, these very handsome people in their uniforms and stuff, are dancing and singing and drinking. And there's this one guy who is crippled. And because he's crippled, the Nazis don't really trust him. And he's cast aside. And he's standing on a balcony looking down at all of this. And when he looks down on it, he wants it so badly, but he knows he'll never get it. So he makes a vow to kill everyone who stands in his way. And that's the interpretation we went with for Richard III. And it was, for me, it was a little soul shattering, mm -hmm. but it was a fantastic yeah. uh, experience. And then he directed me as Hamlet. And I think I must have been in my early 20s. So I think it was like I was 23, 24, something like that. And uh, he just about ground me to a pulp in rehearsals for that. I have never, I don't recall, I know I must have, but I don't recall ever working so hard as I did for Max because the role, obviously, right. was extremely important to him. And he was not going to let me be anything less than I think he demanded of himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I scored pretty well with it, if I have to say so myself. I scored pretty good. Of course. And uh, he then took me to his house and introduced me to his wife. And we would spend hours in his apartment. He took me through all of Shakespeare, all the Shakespearean roles and kind of, that he thought I could play and uh, worked me through them and everything. It was enormous education, the like of which I don't know where I would have gotten. So we came to graduation from that, and uh, I auditioned for the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, mm. which was very new at the time. I think they were in their third year or something like that. And I got cast, and I was really glad because right before that, my agent at the time sent me to an audition for an outdoor drama called Trumpet in the Land. <laughs> and I had a Greece audition the same day. And I was going over to Barney's to pick up a suit. So I was dressed in jeans, rolled up, T-shirt with Winston or cigarettes, I forget what, rolled up in the sleeve. My hair slicked back. And it began to rain in hell, like mad that day. So my hair was frozen. Oh, no. And the audition for Grease was at the Music Box Theater. And they put us all down in the green room. And everybody was kind of dressed, you know, 50s-ish. Mm -hmm. And I was standing there, and my hair started to melt <laughs> all over my face. <laughs> and uh, the guy who was auditioning me was 
I think one of the greatest casting directors and agents in New York. His name was Minnie Liff. And uh, he's passed on now, but he saw me do Noel Coward's Present Laughter. I was playing Coward's role. And he was all over me. He was like, ah, yeah. And I thought, because oh, I knew he was a big Broadway direct, casting director. I thought, I can get stuff out of him. <laughs> so and I did, but not what I was expecting to. But at any oh, rate, no. <laughs> he, uh, he said, you're really not right for Greece, which I'm probably not. I mean, if I were casting for Greece, I would probably not cast myself. So uh, I uh, went, I thought there would be, usually when you go up for a Broadway audition, there's like five or six people watching. Mm -hmm. But I went up on stage in the music box, I think it was the music box, I'm pretty sure. And there was only one person in the audience and it was Vinny, way out in the middle of the audience. He said, Lester, how you doing? I said, oh, no. Vinny, how you doing? Great. What are you going to do for us? I said, well, I can do Love Potion number nine and 16 tons. Which do you want? He said, do both. <laughs> and uh, in Love Potion number nine, I had a really cool split in the middle of that. Mm. So I was real anxious to show that. I made sure my, that I did the split, not my pants. So I sang Love Potion number nine, and then he went to see uh, 16 times. So I sang 16 times. And he said to me, Well, you're still wrong for the show, but that was really fun. Talk. <laughs> so anyway, uh, then I had to go, I had to go to an audition for Trumpet in the Land. So I ran over to the Trumpet in the Land audition still dripping and uh they were like well what can you do i said you want to hear 16 times said, sure <laughs> so i sang 16 times for them and uh the music director was laughing so hard he could barely play it and then uh they wanted to know could i do a monologue and the next day i had a i had an audition for the national shakespeare company so I had prepared Richard II for them, I think. Yeah. So I was ready to do that. So I did that. And then uh, they said, oh, you know, you're perfect for, I mean, there's no problem casting you. Because at the time, before I became a little old man, I was 6'4". Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, you're 6'4 and everything. You'll be fine. And then I thought to myself, I'm 6'4". I'm Italianite and I have black hair. I said, um, what am I playing in this? Just, what do you have me in mind for? Chief, what's it called or something, you know? I said, what do I have to do in this? Because on my resume at the time it said um, equestrian, because I'd been writing a lot at that point. And they said, well, um, you have to ride a horse down a mountain and stop it before it runs into the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, that's great. And I said, what am I wearing while I do this? He said, uh, a loincloth and a war bonnet. I thought, oh, God, please let me get another job. Please let me get another job. 
which I actually did then. I got cast with Alabama. And one of the roles I got cast in, because they were, they were in rotating rep at the time, which was an amazing thing to learn how to do, to play mm -hmm. three Shakespeare's and a Moliere in rotating rep every night, practically a different show, you know, crazy. And uh, Max, I, I was very excited. And I said to Max, the cast in Alabama safety, some of you playing at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. I said, uh, Demetrius in Midsummers. He said, Demetrius, are you silly enough to play Demetrius? I said, I think I'm silly enough to play Demetrius. And indeed I was. <laughs> but the most wonderful thing for me was at the graduation, I heard Max talking to my parents. And he said, he said your son is a brilliant actor and he can do anything he wants in the theater because he knows what it is and he's very, very in love with it. And it's the love and the passion mm -hmm. that will take him. Well, you know, in my heart, a lot of good. So then I played uh, Nugget and Equus for a while when I got back, and which was thanks to Vinnie, I went in as a replacement. And then, um, oh yeah, I got cast in the National Tour of 1776. So it's boring, is this okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Oh, okay. So I got cast in the 1776. And I had done 1776 in Newcastle. I had done 1776. And uh, so I kind of had a handle on it. So I went in and there were two companies. And the company I was auditioning for was in the process of finishing casting. But the company that was just about to go out was doing the big debate scene. I don't know if you know the play. Yeah, I do. Very much. Big debate scene mm -hmm. between John Dickinson and uh, John, John Adams. Yeah. So she said, can you go up there and do it with them? She said, just do it. <laughs> yeah, just go up there and do it. Just go up there. So I went, okay. So I, I went into the scene and I just did all the blocking I had before. I thought, how different could it be? You know? And they cast me. And excited beyond human belief. So I went out on tour and we literally went all over the country, everywhere, from New York up to Nova Scotia, down to Florida, across the country, Texas, California. We went up and down the, is it the Ventura Highway that goes through really beautiful, where, where they used to do, there was that institute where they would sit on the rocks and meditate. Do you know what I mean? Ocelin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The PCH, yeah. And I remember thinking, this is breathtakingly beautiful. And we went, we saw the Devil's Mountain in, mm -hmm. I think, Nebraska or Nevada. No, Nebraska. We were in Las Vegas. Uh, we went through the Petrified Forest. I went, I saw the presidents, you know, carved into the rocks, into <laughs> the mountain. Yeah. Uh, what else happened? Um, Oh yeah, one of the more interesting moments. We had come through Colorado and there was sort of a desert part of Colorado right before you hit the Rockies mm -hmm. and there was a dust storm. Then we got, I mean, real bad, like dust devils and things. 
Then we get up into the Rockies, and there's a snowstorm, like a squall. <laughs> and the pass that we had to go across, they closed just to be the last ones to go through. And I looked out my window, and I looked up, and I saw the mountain. And I looked over the other side. There was the most precipitous drop you have ever seen in your life. And I was just sitting there looking at it. And I said to the guy sitting next to me, I said, can you hand me a joint, please? <laughs> sure. I figured if I'm going to die like this, at least I'm going to be stoned as I can possibly be. So we eventually made it to the other side. And there was a uh, rainstorm, like huge thunderstorm going on. And we got to this hotel, and they told us that we can't leave our rooms after dark because they set out these dogs. And of course, the dogs don't know the difference between the, the people who are there and, you know, other people. So don't, don't go out after dark or the dogs will attack you. So we didn't go out after dark. But the next day, we got to the place where the presidents are. What's that? Rushmore. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was an, the Indians had organized a protest about something, you know, treatment of Indians, whatever. So we got to the theater <laughs> to see the play, and we were being picketed, which was kind of fun. The uh, police had to take us in and all that stuff. But wow. um, so so you were picketed when you were doing a show in high school, and now it's coming back to you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, I would be fine if every show I did got picketed. It's a great selling point. You know? Everybody wants to see it. Right. Um, but I, I love doing that. And I made such really, some of those guys that I was on tour with are still friends of mine after mm -hmm. so many, many years, you know. Yeah. I thought I still looked the same. And they looked older, and I finally decided, no, we all look older. We all do. It's okay. Right. And uh, after that, I came back, and I did a show at Manhattan Theater Club, which may have been the worst experience of my life. I had to bail out one of the leading men who was, it was the Democratic National Convention was in New York, Dennis. I may be getting some of these dates wrong, but... Uh, I had to go bail out one of the leading men because he was hooking around Times Square or something like that, and they arrested him. And I had to go down the tombs to bail him out so he could do the show that night. Things they don't tell you about when you're learning how to be a director. Mm. And then uh, I was recommended to this producer up in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So I went up to New Hampshire, and I was supposed to direct one play. And I ended up half the season. And then I came back and kind of directed everything for like three years up there. And then I started going to Seaside as a guest. So I would go up to New Hampshire, fly down to Florida, go back to New Hampshire. And then I would direct things like Off-Broadway in New York mm -hmm. at the time. So I was directing like a madman. Yeah. And eventually they offered me the job as artistic director at uh, Seaside, and I was there for about 23, 24 years. Wow. So so you started out as an actor, and then you transitioned into director. 
Yes, I did. So how what was that process like and how did you decide to transition from acting and directing? Well, the, I had done some off-Broadway stuff in between all of that as an actor. And uh, I worked with some people who should not be directors. Do you know who Robert Patrick is? He was a pretty famous off-Broadway playwright. He did a play that you might know called Kennedy's Children. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> he was doing a play about Michelangelo. So he asked me if I would play Leonardo da Vinci. So I said, sure, I'll do that. And the director was so terrible, I almost took him to pieces. There was this one scene, and he said to me, well, you're just not being funny in this scene. I said, um, do you want to explain to me what you find funny in this scene? Because I can't see it. Well, you know, he's just funny. I said, my best friend is in the gutter. There's a hustler trying to take advantage of him, and he's having a mental breakdown, and I'm trying to get him out of the gutter. How do I play that and make it hysterical? What what do you see happening here? No answer. And I then worked on a, do you know Witness for the Prosecution? Yes. I did that play. It was it was in a new theater down by the, over on the west side. Like there was an artist thing that opened there. And they hadn't quite done enough with the theater. It rained really bad one day. And we went into rehearsal and the whole theater was flooded. But nonetheless, the director, same, same deal. And I finally thought, you know what? I can do this better. I can make it better for actors. And I feel like I'm just a pawn here. And I feel like I can see it mm -hmm. with much more clarity. Yeah. When we start working on a play, I would see the play in my head clear as a bell. It would be like watching a film in my head. Mm -hmm. So when I started directing, there was like, it was a very spiritual experience for me directing this. Yeah. Because what seems to happen, and this I have to have, I recognized at a certain point that I had to have a lot of courage about being a director. Because you have to have the courage of your vision and your conviction. Because if you try to, you know, oh, I saw this and we can do it like this and this and that, or I did this before and blah, blah, never works. Never, 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 never. You have to hear it, see it, and then allow yourself to let the play speak through you. Mm. And when you talk to the actors, if you let that happen, the actors seem to be, there seems to be a big understanding between you and the actors right. when you allow the, the spirituality and the creation of the play from the playwright mm -hmm. to translate through you as a director to the creative act of the actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when that happens, that's when the best work occurs, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and working with you as much as I have, I've gotten to know your kind of style of directing pretty in intimately. And you you come at it with, with an empathy when you're trying to get something across to your actors. And where did you learn how to do that? Is 
does that coming from being an actor yourself or is it more of a, it, it a spiritual is, it is coming from that but that because i've seen directors reduce actors to tears and i mm -hmm. thought i will never do that i will never ever do that but beyond that i seem to have been blessed i, I don't want this to sound you know like i'm blowing my own trumpet or anything no but i seem to be have been blessed with some kind of empathetic like an empath right. kind of response mm -hmm. and it's funny because when i was talking to when i halfway into season uh, <laughs> um, it's okay it's okay you there's can so much i want to say i know up. you know we take your time okay we can get to everything it's really hard as you probably know to have a relationship with anybody when you're in the theater yeah because the theater constantly takes you away mm -hmm. and i said to my partner at the time if i don't do these things that i'm doing i'm said i'm trying to make a life for us I'm trying to make it easy for you and a life for us so that we can have the things that you want to have. Is this and, when you were at Seaside? Yeah. Right before and then in Seaside. Because, so that was part of your decision for going to Seaside and taking that position? Well, what, no. No? <laughs> yes and no. What happened was um, I had gone... What was I? I was also directing at the time in Memphis, Tennessee, mm -hmm. at a theater down there. So they would bring me out of New York to Memphis, and then they wanted me to go to Florida to direct something else. And then I would come back, and then they wanted me to be in New Hampshire for something. You know, it was that kind of. So you were based in New York, but but you went to different locations for different jobs. Yes. And Ned said to me. I need you here. And then we got into, you only care about your work. You don't care about me kind of thing. And then that time he called me and he said, can you come straight back? Were you going to stay in Florida for a while? I said, uh, I thought I'd stay for a couple of days just to kind of relax. He said, could you please come back? And I said, yeah. Is there something wrong? And he said, I have thrush which was a definite sign of AIDS. Mm -hmm. That was one of the um, indication of AIDS. Mm -hmm. So I went back to New York um, and it began probably one of the worst periods of my life. Um, I didn't want to leave him mm -hmm. and I tried to stay with him as much as possible. And I tried to make sure when I couldn't, because I had to make money, because he was less able right. to make money for all those things that you have to have in New York, rent, food, you know, right. whatever. And uh, but he was going through um, a very self-destructive time. And I was trying to hold him back. This is very hard to explain to hold him back, but he, he was, um, and then you were trying offered, to 
prevent him from self-destructing. Okay. And I remember we went to see a movie that Jane Fonda was in, and I can't remember for the life of me what it was, but we got in a cab to go home. And he was losing it really fast because the AIDS had slipped past the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. And not all the time, but a lot of times, his mind would start to slip into other ideas or other things that were going on that were not going on. And uh, he called his mom. They had, they were a very wealthy family from Muncie, Indiana. And uh, they gave him a airplane ticket and he flew back to Muncie. And I had a feeling that that was, that was, that was going to be it for that. Um, and he came back up and helped me to pull things together to get out of the apartment. But by that time, I was left alone in New York with, basically, I had one friend who was very close to me. His name was Bernard. I don't know if you've ever met him or I don't think you have. Have you? No, but I've heard you mention him a lot. Yeah. And his partner, <laughs> that time in New York, his partner about four months prior had committed suicide. Mm -hmm. So we basically hung on to each other mm -hmm. to try to get through this. And I would call Ned on a daily basis and it would be better and worse and better and worse. And um, I told him in Florida that I was going to take the job because what happened was I was walking around New York and I could see ghosts everywhere. Mm. All the people that I knew who had, because really, I was literally going to a funeral every week. Yeah. There were people dying like Matt. I remember seeing a friend of mine had to be two weeks later. I went to the theater and I was sitting there and I looked up and I saw him being seated and he looked like he had aged 40 years. Mm. It was horrible, horrible. And I couldn't even ask any more. You know, normally you see somebody go, hey, how you doing? Could not do that. Mm. Because people will tell you how they're right. doing. Mm -hmm. And generally, it was not good. Well, you could see. And <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, Ned was in Muncie and I was in Florida. And I was going to do a series of one act plays. Um, Tom Starbridge's The Real Inspector Hound mm -hmm. and something else, which I don't even remember now. And I asked Ned if he thought he could handle the stress of it. And he said he could. So he came down to be with me, but he wouldn't touch me and he wouldn't sleep with me and nothing. Mm -hmm. And I kept trying to tell him, you can, I'm not frightened of this. And then I went up to New York to do casting and he came up to New York with me 
and he had a wig that his parents had bought him and he knew I liked his hair, his regular hair, and he wouldn't take off the wig. And I said, it does, it so does not matter to me if you are bald or if you have hair, it does not matter. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, and then uh, I went into rehearsal for Midsummer Night's Dream, one of the millions of productions I've done. And uh, he, his, I got home one night and there was a message from his mom. And all she said was, Ned lost the battle. And uh, I was living in this apartment complex, beautiful apartment complex, all like wood and pathways to the, you know, gorgeous. And friends of mine were living at the other end of the complex. And I called them and I told them what happened. And uh, they said, do you want us to come down or do you want to come down? I said, no, I think I got to be alone for a while. So I hung up and suddenly I felt the most incredible blackness just coming out of the walls and the floor and everywhere. And I said, I have to get out of here. So I went down to their apartment. I walked in and I literally fell on the floor screaming for bloody murder. It was like my entire insides had been ripped apart because we've been together for about 20 years. Wow. And um, I... uh, blame myself you know that it was my fault that if i hadn't gone and done all of these jobs he would be okay and uh i had survivor's guilt like you can't believe and then it turned out that there were some people who had some kind of gene that made you um immune to the aids virus i had that so they wanted to study mm-hmm. my blood and me to figure out what was going on. I had it, Bernard had it, and a couple of our friends had it. And that was almost more than I could handle, you know. So um, Ned died and I kept directing because it was in the work that I could lose the outside and concentrate on the work. Right. But I remember there were actors that I worked with who would say to me, are we ever going to see you smile again? Or are you never going to smile the rest of your life? And I didn't know how I was ever, ever going to recover from that. I just read, interestingly enough, Call Me By Your Name. Oh, yeah. I saw the film, but mm-hmm. I just read the book. I found the book devastating. Yeah. And everything Elio was going through, I thought that I had never gone through that. I thought everything came easy for me. It was just play, and then it was serious, and then I was good, and blah, 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 blah. That's not the case. Because everything he was going through, I had complete relationship to it. I knew what it was. So reading it was a really good thing, and it put things in line for me. But he said to me, my uh, therapist said, because I said to him at one point, you know, as long as I'm in rehearsal, I feel completely 
uh, together. I know how everybody feels. I know how far I can push them. I know what's going on. But I get out of rehearsal and I can't seem to focus. And he said, well, there was this woman and uh, she kept saying she was afraid she was going to kill her children because every time she drove them someplace, they would make all this noise and she couldn't control it. And I said, well, what do you do for work? And she said, I'm a school bus driver. <laughs> she said, what you do in work, you must bring into life. Yeah. And he said to me at one point, you know, Lester, you have to live your life on purpose. Mm. And that was perhaps the best thing anybody ever said to me. Live your life on purpose. Yeah. And I got through 24 years of Seaside Music Theater and everything else because of his help and the idea that I had a purpose for what I was doing. Yeah, you, know? you, went, you went through a lot of heartbreak in, yeah. in that amount of time. How did that affect your voice as a director? Did it change that at all? I think it made me better as a director because I could see the idea that you never know what is happening to somebody else. So the best option is to be kind. Because mm -hmm. you can be kind to a person in a rehearsal and get more out of them than if you're a terrible beast. Because I know directors in town who like to throw chairs across the room and do all that bullshit. And as far as I'm concerned, that's ridiculous. That's like, that is nowhere as far as directing is concerned. When you direct somebody, you are asking them to allow you into their hearts and minds to help them bring their art forward and to work with you to bring your art forward in a collision of artists. You know, that together we agree that we are going to do the best we can to bring a story that will hopefully touch and move or entertain people. And we're going to bring it forward together. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's why I love being in the theater. And I love being in rehearsal. And this time of being quarantined and not being in rehearsal. And, you know, I'm still in a hospital with my legs. Mm -hmm. Just about killing me because I don't have anybody to talk to about this. Yeah. And about my ideas for certain things that I want to do. And get that coalition going. Do you know what I mean? I do. It, it seems like, so your inner voice is expressed through your creativity and your creative voice through your direction. It is. And, you know, as you said, you've worked with me. I have. So you're in a good position to kind of know whether I'm a total maniac or what. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think you're a maniac at all. <laughs> oh, thank you. If, if you are, then I must be one also. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a question about that probably, but yeah. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the most beautiful things that I remember you saying probably yeah. at a table reading or something is that when we're you know going over the script, we're trying to find the breath of the playwright. Where does your vision come from when working with a play? Where does the process begin for you? From the playwright. 
Every playwright breathes a certain way. Every playwright has ideas and has a way that they want to present themselves or concerns that they have. I love working on Shakespeare because Shakespeare has such a big breath. He breathes so that the mountains shake. You know, his people are powerful, powerful people. And when they look at you, they look at you with thunder and lightning coming out of them. There's no pussyfooting around with those people. Mm-hmm. You know, they are a thousand percent present. Yeah. When we did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Tennessee Williams doesn't breathe as big as Shakespeare does, but he breathes with such passion and love for his characters. Mm-hmm. He has, he really, really, even though it would seem not, he has such love for Brick and Maggie and Big Daddy and Big Mama. He cares about those people so much, I think. Mm -hmm. And he wants to make sure somehow that they can go on. Right. And I think that's true of his characters. He wants to release them to go on. You know, and uh, Mm -hmm. Stella in Streetcar, I think, is the same way. All of them, especially his women, his men. Uh, are very sexual and very intense. But his women are the saviors. Do you find that to be true? Definitely, yeah. To to free them, free them of bondage in a way and allow their inner voice to be expressed. I loved playing Maggie. She was so delicious and rich in her authenticity. And I... I feel like in a way I experienced emotions through her on stage that I had never experienced before in my life at that point. Yeah. Lo- yeah, I loved Maggie. You know, it's funny because when I watch you perform, especially in uh, Cat and in other desert cities, I used to watch you and, you know, it's funny because I played some very twisted characters or some extremely emotional characters that go on for a long time. But I used to think, I hope you're okay to do this every night. <laughs> I hope it doesn't hurt you to do this every night, you know, because you were so passionate and so involved. And there was never a moment that I found to be untrue, you know? And I loved working with you because of that. Yeah, I I think I was able to do that, though, because you presented a place where that was safe to be able to do that. Yeah. To be able to give everything into it. But I, I can say that after the shows, I was exhausted and I didn't really want to talk to anyone. Oh, I'm Definitely. sure And I, I didn't really want to talk to, but I liked to keep a lot of the experience to myself because it was such a state of kind of like a meditation or a transcendence that in a way was so sacred to me. So even our rehearsal process, yeah, um, being able to to dive deep into that and, and have to open it to an audience is a whole different animal. Oh, God, yeah. It really sh- is. Having to share it. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, when you approach your, your work with passion, 
and care, there's nothing more that can be asked from you. I mean, that is the epitome of what we do as creatives, you know. And uh, when I first came to work on Cat, I remember thinking, are they really going to want to do this? Are they going to want to kind of mess around? Or <laughs> what's the attitude that I'm going to confront? Well, right. we went right into it and stayed there. And I love that. It was a great cast and it was a really good energy in that cast. And you can feel that immediately. Mm-hmm. And I was told once, and I think it's true, that the atmosphere of the rehearsal comes from the director. Yeah. The director sets the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. If I'm just a little old cranky man, then it will not be, you guys will not feel released enough to create anything. And if I'm like, you know what, try it. Let's try it and see where Let's it goes. Try. You know? No, it was definitely a spiritual experience for me. And I think that translated into everyone that was in the cast. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I remember there were people in that show who some people told me, oh, you're never going to get a performance out of them. And yet we did. We did. Because (laughs) we all believed in the possibility of everybody doing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that was important, I think. Belief. Belief is everything. It defines everything. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I want to go back to Seaside for a little bit because a lot happened there with you with you know, economically when everything came crashing down for you, but also health-wise. And I'm not sure what order that happened in. What happened? Well, um, you know, uh, the first time as an adult when things really went nuts was in 2005. And at that point, I was working for Seaside and I was covered by what's called a golden insurance policy and a team of very high-priced lawyers. But what happened, I'm not sure, but my legs, uh, I'm trying to put this in a way that's not going to just be gross as I'll get out. My legs started to disintegrate. Mm. And I got a blood disease in my legs that was eating them away. And I would pull off my pants and half my leg would come with it. Wow. So they took me to the hospital and there was a woman there who was an in tropical infectious disease specialist. And she couldn't figure out what kind of bacteria or something that had gotten into my legs that was causing me to do that. But I kept, I was in Memphis when it first hit. And I remember my friend Josie, who was one of the greatest mentors I ever had, was coming to pick me up for breakfast. And I tried to get out of bed and I was paralyzed from my waist down. And I fell on the floor and tried to crawl myself over to the phone to call Josie. And she came, and they immediately took me to the hospital. Now, along with this, all this happening, there were some very funny stories that happened, which <laughs> I won't necessarily get into because that's some black humor going on. <laughs> but uh, um, they took me, a friend of mine came down, one of our 
music directors from Seaside, drove down to Memphis and picked me up and drove me back to Daytona and uh, took me to my doctor who put me in the hospital. And they would put me in these tanks that look like uh, whirlpools. Mm-hmm. And they would scrape my legs, which was one of the more painful things that ever happened to me. And they kept shooting me up with all this stuff, and uh, it was pretty horrible. I can't remember exactly how this went. You're going to have to forgive me for some of this because no, some that's of this, okay. I was in a coma, so I'm not sure how this all happened. I know I went back to here, to Newcastle, and I thought I had the flu, and I came, but I woke up the next, I was having dinner with a friend of mine, I thought, I don't feel very well. I thought, I I must be getting the flu. And I came home, and I packed, and I woke up the next morning, and I felt well enough to take the plane back here. So I came back here, and I went with my friend, Eleanor, to see... Trans-Siberian Railroad, you know? Mm-hmm. And I got back home, and I collapsed by the fireplace, and they took me to the hospital, and I was dying. So they called my parents in about four or five times to say, you better stay with him tonight. We don't know if he'll make it. Eventually, I got better. I made it. They had to operate on me. I don't know exactly what they did, but whatever they did seemed to have saved my life. But I remember that at four o'clock every day, I would get in a foul mood. And they said it was because they had cut all this stuff in my legs and the nerves were knitting together, which would cause my personality to sort of disintegrate. (laughs) Anyway, I went, I, I do remember waking up in bed and there was this beautiful woman leaning over me. And she said, hello, my name is doctor or whatever. I am an Indian woman, and you will be taken care of by many Indian women. And I said, well, that sounds very nice. I said, but I have to be back in Daytona on May 6th. And she was like, oh, Mr. Malise, you're a very sick man. You don't know if we can do that. I said, I know I'm sick, but I got to be back. Well, on the 6th of May, I actually got off the plane in Daytona to go to work on the royal family. And there were people all over the place to greet me. What I didn't know was that my friends, who were also producers with me, had made sure that there, I kept wondering, there's a lot of people in these rehearsals. They had people standing by in case something happened to me that they could whisk me to the hospital immediately while I was directing this show. Mm-hmm. So I did two shows that summer. I did that one and I did a musical. And I started getting much better. This last time, uh, my intestines were perforated, which caused all kinds of horrible crap. And I, at a couple points, was told that, you know, this doctor is going to be your savior, this doctor will be your savior. And all the doctors that I went to had the same prognosis, including my doctor, who I adore, he's a great doctor, sent me to these guys that have a practice in Pittsburgh who are orthodontic doctors for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, if anybody can help you, these guys are going to do it. So unfortunately, I got my hopes up. 
And I remember asking Travis if he could come down with me. So Travis and I drove down to Pittsburgh and we went to this place and I ended up sitting in his waiting room for about two and a half hours. Then they took me back there and I said, I can't lay down for you to take an x-ray. They said, we'll fix it. So they fixed it, they took the x-ray. Another hour later, the doctor comes in and he shoves the things up on the x-ray things. And he says, there's nothing I can do for you. You're so far gone, we're amazed that you can even walk. He said, uh, if we operate on you at all, you'll lose your legs or you will die. So, sorry, I can't help you. He was walking out of the room and I said, can you help me even maintain some kind of quality of life? Nope, nothing I can do, bye. Wow. Well, Travis helped me get out to the car and I just sat in the car for like 45 minutes trying to decide whether I should throw myself in the middle of the highway or figure out some way around this. I obviously figured out some way yeah. around it, but it was horrible because they gave me hope. Right. I could have dealt with anything but hope. You had, you know you had gotten through a coma. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were not... Um, and every doctor said the same thing. And I'm worried about it right now because I'm having a really hard time now. And I will be able to move around eventually. They're working on my house. They're doing all this stuff. Eventually, I will get around. But they're not really working with me here very much. Plus, which um, I am hoping that this is not the time where I will not be able to walk anymore. I'm hoping that's not where we are. I can still direct. I don't right. think there might be some divine providence that took me from being an actor to took me from being to took me to being a director because I could never be an actor now not like this you know I did one show in a wheelchair and it was really hard so now that I'm directing I can direct from a wheelchair that's not a problem right you know? so have you felt challenged and have oh God, you felt yes. like you have had to compromise your voice or suppress it in order to no. advance things in any no, way? No, I won't do that. Yeah. As long as I'm in rehearsal, I know this is really hard to believe, but it's true. As long as I'm in rehearsal, I'm fine. I don't hurt. I'm completely connected to everybody and everything. I love being there. I would rather be there than any place else I can think of. Mm -hmm. And I would rather be with the people that I'm directing than any other people I can think of. And that's the way it's always been. What is it about that that you think makes it that way for you? I hear, okay, <laughs> St. Catherine, I'll go lead the Dauphin into France. Uh, I hear as I'm going on, I feel the energy. I don't actually hear words, but I have the energy and the insight to know where to go and what to do. Yeah, so, so it's what's... a spiritual force yeah. uh -huh. that uses me as a conduit. Okay. I think is the best way of saying that. Oh, that sounds very, but that's how I feel. We accept that. Here. I feel, oh, good. Because I really do think that what I'm, what's happening to me is this rush of spiritual energy to create, this creative passion and power is using me to 
is coming through me. And it gives me such love and such insight and such passion that it overwhelms everything else that's wrong with me. Well, well you've been through so much um, and have been through situations where you probably shouldn't still be here in many ways. And you've gone yeah. through them. Well, the last time when I got sick this last time, <laughs> two things happened. Once I went to the bathroom and what do you do? What are those rocks you pee out? What are they called? A kidney stone? Yes, kidney stones. I, can I please use this? And the nurse took it and she looked and she went, oh my God, do you know you just passed kidney stones? I said, no. She said, look, there's these huge kidney stones in here. Didn't you feel anything? I said, no, I didn't feel anything. She said, usually people are laying on the floor screaming. And they told me the reason that I got so sick was because my pain threshold was so high, I didn't mm. feel it. Because I've been in pain for so long, mm -hmm. I just don't feel it as much as other people, I guess. So there's that. So you didn't know that you were in trouble? Yeah. So you have to come and tell me when you, I don't look so good. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to go back. I'm really interested in, in talking more about um, you being a conduit and, and something is guiding you to direct. Something is speaking through you. Well, let me give you an example of something. I was directing The Tempest, and I had like six dancers who played the spirits. And uh, a wonderful dancer who was playing Ariel. And uh, great choreographer and all this stuff. I did, and the, the woman who played Miranda was also a dancer. And I was try I've never been satisfied with the way the tempest starts. It feels empty to me. It doesn't feel like it it ever lifts off, you know? Right. So I thought, let's try something. So I talked to Tony, who was my choreographer, and uh, Prospero and Ariel. And I said, okay, you release Ariel to be the storm. And he had all these beautiful things hanging off his costume. He's almost naked except for these things, you know, that would whip around. And he started doing these turns and the thing would look like a hurricane. Mm -hmm. And the spirits were moving in hyper time. They were moving really fast. And I said to Miranda, you move very slow. It's like you're standing on the beach and way out there, you see the ship in really direful harm. And you're trying to reach out to it, but it's like you're being kept back. Like you can't reach, the winds are so hard and everything is so hard that you're moving in very slow motion. And then I took the people on the ship and said, you guys are moving in real time. You know, everything that happens to you happens in real time. So there's this spirit world, which is the storm, which is flashing around you. There's Miranda on shore trying to get to you, but she can't move. It's like she's in cement. She's moving very slowly. And you guys are trying to solve the problems, but are moving in real time. And I would watch it every other night. One night I'd watch it and go, that's really good. I really hit on something here. The next night I watched it, I think, 
that looks like the biggest piece of shit I've ever put on stage in my life. <laughs> and I kept going back and forth. And finally I said, just leave it, just leave it. This is what you feel, do it. Well, the audience went insane because they had never seen that. And I think one of the things that we do is show audiences what they have never seen. Yeah. If we can. Do you know a woman called Diamanda Gallus? If you can, see if you can find her. But she talks about that, and I totally believe that. As, as artists, it's our job to show an audience things they haven't seen. Right. And if an audience has never seen life move in three different time elements, let's show them that. Let's tell them that this is possible. That someday, when you're walking down the street, your life will suddenly pick up moving very fast. And you'll look at other people and you'll think they're not moving very fast. What the hell's going on? And other people will just say, hello, you know, <laughs> Mrs. How are you today? And you won't know what the hell's going on. But you will remember the Tempest and you'll go, oh, yeah, that happened to the Tempest. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that was one of the things that happened like that. So, so you've been in a hospital bed for a while. I have. And you've had a lot of time to think. I have. You have. So what is a story, if you had no restrictions, that you would want to share with an audience or tell them or show them in the way that you're describing now? What's, what's something that you would... Here's the thing. Have you ever heard of... Oh, shit. The Art of, like The Art of Creativity or something like that. You would love it. It's a book plus a workbook. And there are exercises in there to release your creativity. The Artist's Way? Artist's Way. That's it, exactly. Yes. And uh, remember she talks about writing three pages every morning? Morning pages, yes, I do that. So I do, I've been doing that. It's amazing what it's done. It's opened my memories, my world, my vision, everything. So right now, what I want to tell people is I want to show them measure for measure. I want them to see what religious extremism and hypocrisy can do to a society hmm. and how the life of people are on the line because of extremist views that are in the main hypocritical. That's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. So measure for measure is one piece that I want to do as soon as I can. The other piece that I would really like to do a lot is view from the bridge because it deals with immigrants coming to a new country on aware of anything that's happening to them, full of fear, full of love, full of embracing what is new to them. And yet the government makes it so fearful for them that they turn on each other. Mm. And I think those are the two things right now. Is that what you asked me? Yes, exactly. That how, I would like to yeah, do. how relevant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, because... It is, and it should be, and we should be doing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Max used to say, you have a voice, and people will listen to you. So use your voice. Don't 
turn into somebody who's hiding in the corner waiting for somebody else to tell you what you should be doing. Get out there and use your voice. And <laughs> I was in Memphis, no, Daytona. You know, I'd speak before the show happened. And do you remember Fahrenheit 9-11? Do you remember that film when yes. it came out? Yes. So I was playing at this little arts theater in Daytona. And I went in the afternoon because it was an afternoon of an opening night. And I thought, nobody will be there. I thought it will just be me. Well, I walk in and the place is jammed with people. And that night we were opening John Guare's and uh, Galt McDermott's Two Gentlemen of Verona, which was put out during the Vietnam War as an anti-war piece. Working for me right now, you know. And... Annie was showing at the other theater. So uh, I go to open two gentlemen and I said, <clears throat> Seaside Music Theater would like to thank Cinema One for bringing Fahrenheit 9-11 here and allowing us to see it. Applause and booze. So I'm holding a microphone and I said, excuse me, is that Republican booing I'm hearing? Oh. Isn't it so sad that I'm the one holding the microphone and I have the spotlight on me? So I went out at intermission and one of our biggest supporters just tried to rip me a new one in the lobby. And he was like, I love your art, but I hate your politics. I said, Jim, my politics are connected to my art. I don't have art without politics nor politics without art. They are entwined. You can't have one without the other. And uh, so we had that. We, we don't need an exit policy. I said, you're not really telling me that, are you? You're not saying that we have all these troops out there and we don't need an exit policy to bring them back. Of course, two months later, we have no exit policy, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then uh, they're going back into the act two and I'm at the door. And he turns to me and says, oh, by the way, can you get us two tickets for Annie for Saturday? I said, you know, I don't think it's a good idea for Republicans to see Annie. <laughs> <laughs> but I did get the tickets for Annie, so I think that solved everything. That little moppet at least let me keep my job for probably another couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Seaside closed down because of the economic situation correct? Yeah, well, again, periods of your life where you think, what the hell? My father passed away. Mm. And obviously, as my biological father, three weeks later, Tippin, who was my producer and my artistic father, passed away. Mm. So this all happened within three weeks of each other. And I knew we were doomed because it was also 2008. So the economy was falling to pieces. Daytona Beach was going to help on a handbasket, you know. Everything just fell to pieces. And that's what happened. And so, so then, then I came back up here and Scott McGrath called me and said, you wanna come out here and teach to Westminster? which of course made me immediately run in and take a cold shower. Then I came back out and called him and I said, sure, what am I teaching? 
acting in Shakespeare. Okay, let's go. So I worked at back Westminster at, for yeah. like nine, ten years. How How is it like to be back at Westminster after attending there and having such struggle in your own... Funny, because yeah. I went out there and I went back to the old stomping grounds and I had my students and, you know, they look so young. Oh, my God. <laughs> I felt like I should bring a couple of Rattlers and squeaky toys, you know. <laughs> But they came, they came and we were all, you know, oh, you're, oh my God, you know how many pages you have on Google? I said, on Google? Did you Google me? Of course we did. I said, oh, no. <laughs> I hope that murder thing doesn't show up. Anyway, then um, <laughs> we got along very well and I did the misanthrope with them and that went well. But I remember thinking, why was this place such a monster to me? when it's just a playground, mm. you know? That's how I felt. What, what do you feel about art in an academic setting? Well, um, I think it depends on the academics. And uh, I think one of the most important things about that is you should not be being taught by people who have never been paid to do what they're teaching you. Mm -hmm. I think the people who are teaching you need to have made a living doing what they're training you to do. Yeah. Because if they haven't, they will not understand what it really takes and what kind of passion and grit it takes to do what you're doing. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So yeah. I think there are some academics now like Max, who not only was paid to do what he was doing, he was a major star and suffered for his art. You know what I mean? He, yeah. he had such belief and passion that he could communicate that to you and you knew exactly what that meant and how important it was. And I think there are a lot of academic people right now and a lot of departments who shovel kids in and out, who I don't think people, it's hard to ever say this, but I think you should have people in your department who at least have a mustard smidge of a chance yeah. to actually make a living doing this, mm. you know? And people say, oh, how can you tell that? I can tell that very clearly. Mm. Most of the people I cast at Seaside Music Theater have Broadway television movie careers. Right. I can see it immediately. You know, now that doesn't mean everybody's going to have me come all over the place, to, you know, get their students happening. But I have seen people put students in trauma classes where I think this is unfair to these people to take their money because they don't even have a glimmer mm -hmm. of what is happening here or what it would take. I remember once I took a, I was teaching a course. And I eventually had to fix it up because it was all women in an acting class. <laughs> a course of all women. 
okay? Mm. So the first day we met, I said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. I want you to tell me about your first boyfriend. Tell me, you know, like, the joy of it, what you thought about it, how it made you feel. About an hour into the class, everybody was laying on the floor weeping. <laughs> I mean, sobbing, <laughs> weeping. And did you, you've been Andrew Aid, right? Yes. I saw him walk in the room. He turned around and walked right back out. He wouldn't even <laughs> stay there for a second. And I was like, gosh, I didn't mean for you to be crying. I never, my fault, maybe because I'm not a woman and I could tell you about my first ex and I could tell you about it. I could tell you what happened. And I don't think I would be involved emotionally like that for some of some. But I don't think the first one, I think the first one was kind of fun and happy, la, la, la. I don't think it was that kind of thing. But I think I could be wrong and you would know better because you are a woman. But I think women have a much more, that's why I think it's easier to get women to let go in a rehearsal than it is to let men let go. I think it's very hard because a lot of men are frightened because they're in theater and if they have an emotional scene, they're going to th they're going to think that their friends will think they're gay, and that's what will happen. Mm. Well, I also think that um, they were probably closer to their their first boyfriend than you were in age well, to yours, <laughs> and so yeah. it was a lot fresher. Well, they were sophomores and juniors, yeah. so I guess. But also, I think that goes to show how important it is to have someone in charge who is empathetic and who can handle situations like that. Because if you have someone in that position who doesn't know how to handle people's emotions and hold them very gently, then that could be a terrible situation, a devastating one. Yeah, there was a lot of hand-holding yeah. and bringing it all back down and breathe, deep breathing and remembering the good times and say, all right, give me one really good thing. Give me a good thing, you know, like that. That's how I thought it would, you know, yeah. bring it together easier. That's good. Can you talk about being back in Newcastle after all of the experience that you gained from New York and touring around the world and at Seaside and facing Almost. Did I tell you I went to Russia, by the way? You did not. Yeah, I did. Uh, well, we'll add that in. Tell you about that. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, I got a call one day that there were a group of Russians, teachers, and students who were coming over from the Moscow Conservatory to spend time at the Oslo, and they wanted to come up and spend time with us because they wanted to see how. American musical theater was put together because mm. they loved American musical theater and they wanted to come and spend time with us to watch how it happened. And we had six translators, one with me and five for everybody else. Okay. <laughs> so the first night they got there, we were just coming down with the opening of the apple tree. Okay. So I said, you'll see Apple Tree tomorrow night. So I had that all arranged. The next day, 
they came, I was directing the last two that season. I was directing Into the Woods and The King and I. So they came with me to watch Into the Woods rehearsals. Not a movement, not a peep from these kids. And the translators were, you know. And then we opened it up for questions afterwards, and they were just so excited by everything. And then we brought them into the choreography rehearsal so they could see the James Robbins choreography, Jerome Robbins choreography being put together for the ballet scene mm-hmm. in King and I, you know, Small House of Uncle Thomas. Yes. We, it was my contention after that because it was doing the whole Cold War thing. It was my contention that if the artists could get together and talk, we would have no problems. <laughs> there would be no problems. Right. Because everybody just couldn't get enough information out of it. Everyone wanted to talk about it. And how are you doing this? What do you think about that? What do you guys do? And how do you do that? How long do you rehearse? You know. Mm. And uh, they did throw me in the swimming pool in a tuxedo. I won't have to say <laughs> that. Uh, and, uh, but then they invited me to go to Russia to teach for two weeks at their school to kind of take them through it. Um, would you say like um like an intensive or something yeah uh, yeah like um scaffolding of how our rehearsal would be put together to do musical theater so we did taught them to sing and song and get them into dance and do all that i and it was the most magnificent experience it was so great because i was in a totally uh uh alien culture to me right but there was this one woman who was one of the students, she was breathtakingly beautiful. I mean to tell you, this woman looked like she had stepped out of a Chekhovian play and was, and she and I were talking and she had, she was just playing Masha and Three Sisters. And she had just these ideas about Masha. I was like, I have to direct you. <laughs> I said, I know you have Russian directors who are doing Chekhov, but I think I should do it. <laughs> we had, it was, it was an amazing experience just to be able. And the woman who was their ballet mistress, their dance, was this little woman. And we saw films of her when she was a prima with the Bolshoi. And she was fabulous. You know, she was like <laughs> air. But she used to smoke these little cigarettes. Like, they looked like joints. They weren't, but they were yeah. wrapped in brown paper and everything. And she said to me, hey, hey, Lester, come here. You want a joint? No, you want cigarettes? I said, sure, I'll try yours. She said, it, the rumor is that the Russian army moves on borscht and this. So she put the cigarette in my mouth, lit the cigarette, and I swear to God, the top of my head flew off and my eyes plugged out. <laughs> It was insane. But so there was that. Yeah. So out of all the projects that you've directed, which one do you think you were able to express your your voice the most? Which project reflected you as a person and a director the most? You know what it is, really? It's the writers. Okay. It's the, it's the writers that allow you a conduit almost to yourself. Mm. So, for instance, uh, directing Amadeus was an amazing experience for me because I wanted to do it in a way that nobody had. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted, I had the orchestra, I had a full orchestra. I had opera singers, I had dancers, and I had actors, and I had a budget. So I did the whole show, and we did all of the opera scenes and all of the, you know, the dances within the opera and all of that within the show. So I staged everything, and it was, people went insane. It was a little lengthy experience with the theater, but they sat, and (laughs) it went really well. And then my friend, who did Mr. Huffenpuff and works a lot with Sesame Street, mm-hmm. he came in and did all the devils in the Don Giovanni part. Oh. And they were all these black materials. And there was this one guy, brilliant dancer, who stood up and he was on who's. So he was actually on point, wow. kind of. And he had a big goat's head that had like LED red lights. <laughs> where where the eyes were, and he'd come out of the fog, you know. Oh, wow. I mean, there's nothing I, like doing gigantic epic theater, yeah. you know. I wish I could have I, seen that. I think that and the Three Penny Opera were my two favorite musicals. I think plays, I really think uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof mm. was major for me. So was uh, Other Desert Cities. I loved working on those. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, the other thing that I really loved was um, Fool for Love. Yeah. Because it was so wonderful to see my nephew, Brandon, mm-hmm. burst into this amazing actor. Yeah. Which is what he did. I wish you could have seen it. Yeah. He's been hiding in the wings. He was, <laughs> he was amazing. You two have to be together on stage at one point or another. Yeah, I, I hope so. Has to happen. We'll Has to happen. I, I will pay, I will actually buy a ticket to see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so can you talk about all of your worldly experiences, including Russia, and coming back to Newcastle where you started, and not having such a big budget, and sometimes dealing with discrimination because of your your health issues and your disabilities. What, what was that like for you? Well. And, and has that affected your voice at all as a It director? doesn't affect my voice. When I go to work, I go to work. Yeah. I don't care if I'm working for no money at the Playhouse or $10,000 at a, you know, mm-hmm. another kind of theater. Uh, but I will tell you this. Um, there are people who knew me in high school who still think I'm in high school. Mm. I remember uh, Neil asked me for my, you know, Vita. So I handed him my resume. Now, it's big <laughs> because I've been yes. at this for a very long time. And he looked at me and said, oh, you haven't been doing anything, have you? I said, well, you know, this was my job. This is what I do. I, I don't repair televisions or do that, or I'm not an accountant. I am a professional director. This is what I do. And there are some people who would rather see me disappear and not be a part of anything. And I did say at one point to people, I am not here to try to take anything away from anybody. All I want to do is direct a play. That's all I want. The only thing I care about is directing. I mean, that's not the only thing I care about, obviously, but as far as that arena of life is concerned, the only thing I really care about is I want to direct some plays and it's going to help you. And if you let me, 
I can help you do a lot of stuff because I have a lot of connections. Well, they don't want to do that. They don't want to ask me anything. They don't want to help me get anything. They don't want to help me, you know, let me help them do anything. So I just go ahead and do my thing and direct and am happy with that. I would much rather be able to be doing more. Yeah. But they don't want more out of me. So well, what that's, are you do? that's their loss. That's their loss. With with all of the things that ha are happening with the pandemic and all of the theaters are shut down right now, what, what do you see as their future? Well, I do think that when the theaters reopen again, it's going to be the biggest celebration you've ever seen in your life. I do think they're everything's going to open again. This <clears throat> maybe will go on. My estimation from everything I've been hearing and seeing and reading, this may last at best another year, but in that year, I think things are going to start to turn around. We will come back. But I think what's really interesting about this is that everybody I talk to all have got this outside thing, their second thing that they always wanted to do mm -hmm. that they're working on while they're not working on their first thing. Yeah. So I think it's opening up people and they're going to be better. They'll be better actors, better designers, because they will bring all that stuff that they're working on now back to their number one art. Mm -hmm. And I think it will be a good thing. Yeah, at as, least that's my hope. As we grow as people, then we grow as artists is how I've felt about it. I don't think you can stop growing as an artist. I don't think that happens. Mm, no, because we're no constantly... No matter what you're doing, even if you're yeah. locked away in the house, you know, mm -hmm. you put on television, you watch something, you go, fuck, that's really good. How did they do that? What are they doing there? How's that working? That's a great play. Let me read that play. You know, I've been working on my Italian Yep. while I've been shut away. Mm -hmm. Just cause, you know, why not? And uh, reading like crazy. I've been reading like crazy because I have a whole bunch of books that I haven't gotten to mm -hmm. because of things, you know. So I'm working on my legs every day. I have a series of exercises I do twice a day and um, hoping that when I am confronted with moving around, I can move around and at least... You know, did you know that we put a ramp outside my house? No. Yeah. We put a ramp outside my house, and they're getting me uh, a lift chair and a hospital bed. And then they're kind of, they're coming in to redo some parts of the house so it'll make it more handicap accessible for me. Perfect. So that'll be good. Yeah, you're, you're in I just wish they'd get on with it. Because <laughs> if I have to spend another Christmas in this place past this one, it may be silent night, horror night. You know, I just don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should write that one. <laughs> silent night, horror night. I think I should. Lester, a mild-mannered director. <laughs> <laughs> so I usually wrap up the conversation with this question. If your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? Go out there and splash paint all over the walls is what my inner voice would say. Mm, yeah. I always tell that to my cast. You probably heard it. And to me, what that means is go out there and spread your color 
all over the world. Don't ever not be there. Yeah, um, I remember one director said, you know, people should never look for who exited when you enter, ever. Mm -hmm. That's really good. That's good. (laughs) But to me, that translates in splash paint all over the walls. Go out there and just be all of yourself. Be everything. Take take yourself to the world and let the world take you in. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's it. It's good. It's a good one. That's how I feel. We'll put that one up in Newcastle. Thank you so much for joining me. And until next time, stay tuned in to you.